0: and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at Roll Podcast.com. We've got archives of every episode, sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, as part of our Let Motown Roll miniseries, we're recasting Nate's 2021 interview with Dr. Lix, aka Alan Slutsky, to discuss Standing in the Shadows of Motown, his classic biography of the Motown backing band, The Funk Brothers. Email us at podcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Dr. Licks, a.k.a. Alan Slutsky, the author of Standing in the Shadows of Motown, The Life and Music of Legendary Bassist James Jamerson, also a principal on the documentary Standing in the Shadows of Motown. Dr. Licks, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Nate. How are you doing? Nice to be here
1: doing great it's a big thrill um i want to thank you first for your work in achieving recognition for james jamerson and the funk brothers when you started this in the late 80s i barely knew who he was and i was somebody who read you know guitar player every month when it came out and would occasionally hear somebody like paul mccartney or john entwistle mention his name but i really want to salute you for the work you've done in bringing the funk brothers uh, to the attention of the world
2: well, it's been a it's been a long haul, but very rewarding. In fact, the, the most rewarding part was uh, bass player. About a year ago, had a big survey of all their readers and everything, and um, they they voted on who were the, the hundred greatest bass players of all time. You know, ranked in order, and Jamerson was number one and was on the cover. So that was the that was like the final achievement that I needed to get. You know, and for him and. Uh, you know, he's there. He's there. Everybody knows who he is now.
1: Yeah, appreciate it. And I also feel like that your work, especially with the documentary, triggered a whole appreciation of a lot of other session musicians. The Wrecking Crew got a documentary. The Muscle Stroll Swampers got a documentary. So anyway, hats off. But let's get to the topic at hand. What was so important about the Funk Brothers?
2: Well, they they came at a time when um, most of the studio bands, uh, most of the recording uh, studios that belonged to, you know, major labels had session players um, that were the house band. It wasn't like you know in New York there were hired guns. You know, you would there were so many musicians in L.A. That, you know, the um, there was an amazing thing with in the midst of all those L.A. musicians that the Wrecking Crew you know managed to stand out. Um, but in Detroit, you know, there was a much more limited. Uh, pool to draw from and they were a bunch of elderly jazz and r&b and blues musicians and they thought that what they were playing at motown was garbage i mean they were you know later on they realized it was art years later but at the time you know they all wanted to be miles davis and, and tommy flanagan and they all wanted to be these major um you know jazz stars and uh they were just doing that to pay the bills
1: and yet their achievement is immense. Like at the beginning of the documentary, it's pointed out that the, the Funk Brothers played on more number one hit singles in the U.S. than Elvis Presley, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and the Beach Boys combined.
2: Yeah, well, that that's why they stand kind of tiptoe above everybody in a certain way, uh, even, even the Wrecking Crew. Um, because they had a, a – you know, the Wrecking Crew had a certain sound, but they were a little bit more – uh, they changed a little bit from artist to artist, producer to producer. The Funk Brothers always sound like the, the Funk Brothers. And the amount that they recorded was staggering uh, because they, they were all on salary. You know, uh, most of the other bands were, uh, studio bands where you know, they would call them when they needed them. But these guys showed up every day at, you know, eight o'clock, nine o'clock, whatever. Sometimes they stayed all nine o'clock in the morning, you know, but they, they would... Uh, they were there. It's just an immense amount. Like I was in, um, I was in, in Edison, New Jersey. Universal used to have their vault with all their intellectual property. Every multi-track tape that they ever had. And when you saw the Motown section, it was just staggering how much they had recorded there. And these guys were on everything.
1: Yeah. There's a multiple year period there where they felt like they couldn't record a major single without James Jamerson on base
2: yeah exactly um there were uh you know he was he had become such a signature part of the sound like when i remember um when I was doing research for the book, grill marcus, who's a a fabulous uh rock journalist um, had reviewed an album of it was like a Motown greatest hits album and he called it james jamerson's <laughs> greatest hits as opposed to you know all the other guys and in fact when in the movie there's a part where steve jordan was talking about you could have had uh, Deputy deputy you know with all he, he said with all due with all due respects to the great motown stars you could have had deputy dog singing on those records and the grooves were so solid that they would have been a hit anyway which caused me a lot of grief because a, a bunch of the motown stars uh we're not too happy about that particularly martha reeves who was would say i ain't no dog you know so <laughs> <laughs> they didn't like it too much.
1: Got caught in the crossfire on that one. Yeah, and I mean, let's talk about the band a little bit. James Damerson was the bassist at the center of it, and for a long time he was the main and the only bass player in the Motown studio. They had other bassists out on tour with the Axe. Early on, James toured with the Motown review, but by 63, 64, he's basically locked into the studio, and that lasts till the end of the decade. But it's not just James. His His partner at the foundation of the funk brothers is, is a drummer named Benny Benjamin. Tell us a little about about Benny and what he contributed to the Funk Brothers.
2: Well if I had if I had to um rate him number one and two, um every James and you know the 13 or so guys that were the main guys in the scene. Um James definitely number one and only partly only because Benny as As bad an alcoholic as Jamerson was, he could handle his substance abuse problem better than Benny could. Benny's um, everything. he did you know heroin, he did uh, pills, he did you know, he drank. and um, it hampered him. Jamerson started hamper him later in on his career, but Benny lost a lot of his output due to that. so that's why that's the only reason why I wouldn't say they're tied at one. Um, And then third would be Earl Van Dyke was probably the next most important musician there.
1: And that was the pianist Earl Van Dyke. But what was it that Benny did that, you know, when you listen to Motown, you hear that four, four time on the snare drum. And it took me a long time to catch what was special about what Benny Benjamin was doing. Can you explain a little bit to the lay listener what makes him so special as a drummer?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, Benny was originally a big band drummer. He was a jazz drummer. And um, he also had some. He always used to say he came from the islands, from Bimini, which most of the guys thought was BS. But um, but he had he brought a lot of interesting beats uh, that you wouldn't hear in pop music into the into the mix. And as far as the four four thing, that you know that definitely was a Motown. Uh, groove. And what they would do, part of it was the reason for that was they would lay down this absolutely no doubt about it beat where Jamerson could just go crazy, where Jamerson wouldn't have to lay it down as much, you know, because he could just weave in and out of this rock-solid beat. Um, as far as the 4-4 four, four, though, a lot of it, um, a lot of records you hear on, with that kind of groove, uh, probably 50% of them were also Pistol Allen, who was also great at the four, playing the 4-4 he, uh, he came a little later than Benny, of course, but um, he, had that, he had that feel down, too.
1: And, and Pistol also specialized in shuffles, which is one thing Benny, for all his virtuosity, struggled with.
2: Yeah, Pistol came from New, uh, uh, Memphis, so he had that kind of Beale Street kind of thing uh, going. And he was like when uh, Heat Wave, you know, that's him you know, that's, that shuffle is him. And, um, when we, when we did that in the movie with Joan Osborne, uh, Pistol, he, he was one of my favorites. Uh, first of all, he was heroic because he was dying when we were making the film. He had cancer and he died shortly after we, we finished the film. Thank God he, he got to see, he never saw it in the theater, but he got to see the final cut from his deathbed and, uh, meant a lot to him. But, um, you know, heat wave. It's a it's a pretty bright tempo, and to keep that shuffle going is tough. You know, and it wouldn't have been any problem, but he was up on his roof, and he fell through. Uh, he fell off his roof through a pane of glass, and um, he was recovering from it. So we had to take the beat a hair back because he couldn't keep up with it. But the feel still was astounding.
1: And there was a third principal drummer in the in the heyday of the of the Funk Brothers, and that was Uriel Jones, who was kind of an understudy of ben, Benny's. Who was, I wouldn't say his prime virtue, but he was reliable, whereas Benny could not be counted on.
2: Yeah, Uriel was like um, the utility man. He had to do a little bit of everything. Um, he was a real good. He was a real good rocker. You know, he had he had that feel. Um, and uh, it never left him. like when we were touring um, before you know, it was a few years before he died, and Euro wasn't in great health. He had uh, he he had had a, a big and large heart, and um, he had a problem. so he he was a little scared to dig in as much as he would because he didn't want to have a heart attack on stage, but the feel was always there. So we just you know our sound men knew just to pump him up a little bit more so we wouldn't have to hit as hard. But the, uh, you know, the, the feel was there right till the day he died.
1: And let's hear a song from the Miracles. This is a early Funk Brothers tune, Way Over There. way over there with Smokey robinson the miracles that's one of the first songs where the funk brothers anchored by benny benjamin on drums and james jamerson on bass are in full effect how did barry gordy put the band together initially mickey stevenson sometimes credited with putting the band together but from what i've read it seems like barry gordy personally recruited benny um how did the rest of the band get put together
2: well benny was um, what happened was benny you know Burry was a big jazz aficionado. He was always hanging out at jazz clubs, and he, he had seen Benny in the jazz clubs, so he brought him in. He brought him in before Jameson. And um, James, they had a a bunch of bases before James, a guy named Clarence Isbell, and this guy named Professor Beard. And um, Joe Hunter claims he brought him in. Um, the, uh, J- Joe Hunter was the second important keyboardist. The, right before Joe Hunter was a guy named Popcorn and the Mohawks. Uh, Popcorn Wiley, who had a group called Popcorn and the Mohawks. And um, then uh, Joe Hunter came in and uh, he stayed till about 63. Well, this Professor Beard apparently was struggling with the track and, you know, Joe was on the track and he said, well, I know this guy we could, we could tear that up. And they brought in Jameson. And Joe always had a an amazing way of telling stories. You know, he's very colorful and he would usually start quoting Shakespeare and things like that. He knew all these Shakespeare lines. But he said, uh you know, and they said, let Jameson try this. And, you know, so he got on the bass and played it. And he said, Mr. Professor Beard looked like his whole world ended. He knew, well, that's it. I'm out of here. <laughs>
1: that's got to be intimidating sort of reminds me of Al Cooper's story about when Michael Bloomfield showed up at the Bob Dylan session for Like a Rolling Stone and yeah, if, if James Jamerson sits down on the stool to play some bass, it's time to put it up if you're, <laughs> if you're another bass player it's not going to be easy to compete with that but um, tell us a little bit about Earl Van Dyke and, and how he came in after Joe Hunter left in 63-64 and kind of took over leadership of the band from behind the keys well,
2: Earl had uh, he had been playing with this band, this some, somebody from Detroit named Emmett Slay and the Slay Riders, and uh, but he was also would go out on the road with Aretha in the early days, and uh, he was tired of the road, and he came back, and um, Barry was looking for a more sophisticated. You know, Joe Hunter was a very bluesy oriented. He played a little bit of jazz, but Barry wanted more sophistication, and Earl. Was a seasoned jazz player, so he brought him in around '63, um, and Earl quickly became. You know, everybody had so much respect for him, and he, he had a. Besides musically, um, he 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 knew where everybody was. Like when it came time for a session, you know, he would know where to find Jamerson, what bars they hung at, and uh, he would know. You know, and he can control the guys. You know, because you know Benny and. You know, he was like a father figure to Benny and Jamerson, because um, and that and believe me, they needed that in the, uh, in the in the studio down there. So he he became the de facto leader, but um, he was just first of all one of the things about Earl is he hit the keyboard so hard, and that's the reason that the Motown piano part sounds you know uh, so ballsy because uh, I remember Paul Reiser, one of the great arrangers, described Earl's Piano style was gorilla piano,
1: and that's because he was so huge. I mean, this guy was like what 250,
2: 260 at his peak. Oh yeah, they, yeah. Earl used to say, yeah, he would tell me, yeah, we we was all fat and greasy back then. Him and Robert <laughs> White, you know, had a bunch <laughs> of guys who put on some some pounds.
1: And since you bring up Robert White, tell us about uh, what they called the Oreo guitar section. Uh, and the Snake Pit.
2: Well, they called him that um, because uh, usually Joe would sit in the middle and on either side of him was Eddie Willis and Robert White. So uh, Eddie and Robert were black and Joe was a white Italian guy.
1: So that's Joe Messina. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Joe Messina. And uh, but they were they were they had a very systematic way of working. Like Joe was the best reader. Um, he was the best guy who could play over chord changes. Um, so a lot of times, if there was a, re, a a complex line that had to be read, he would play it. Um, Eddie didn't read it all; just could read chord charts a little. So, but he was funky and he was bluesy. And Robert was kind of trying to be Wes Montgomery, so he had a he had this beautiful sound. That's the reason why my girl, that guitar line is so amazing because he played with his thumb on an L five, exactly like Wes Montgomery did. He, he met him once. He said it was it was his idol, and uh, that's why he had that tone.
1: And the the steak pit was one small room in the house, uh, the Hitsville USA house in in Detroit, and. All of the instruments would be played live to originally three-track and then to eight-track. They jumped to eight-track pretty early on, but everybody had to play live. They all had to get their parts right at the same time. And with that kind of bleed over, they would directly inject the bass and guitars. They weren't playing through amps. They were going right into the soundboard.
2: Yeah, the, when, when you walked down, there were like a, about four or five steps from the control booth down to the floor. It was... It was I mean, the floor, it looked like you were in a Jewish delicatessen. You know, you're expecting to see sawdust and, you know, corned beef in the fridge. Um, but it was a converted garage. And um, the uh, the room uh, right next to the stairway was a, it was like an uh, antiquated looking gray box with meters. And the meters um were, you know, LED they, they were, you know, uh, uh, meters to read the, the pressure, the sound pressure level. And each guy would have to, um, set his own sound and his own level. And you would catch hell if you were distorting, you know, you had to, you had to do a good job of setting your level and everything went directly. in. so they very rarely used amplifiers Dennis Coffey once in a while used amplifiers.
1: And Jamerson was an exceptional role in that he could turn up his sound and get a little bit into the red.
2: Yeah, he he liked to run a little hot. And that was part of the sound. It was so, you know, it, it, it had a lot of hairballs on it, you know, so to speak. Um, and that was, uh, you know, there's been a, a huge... Controversy for this dogged the project for you know like three decades uh, over Carol K versus James Jamerson. And Carol K was a great West Coast bass player <coughs> who played, um, she played a lot of sessions on the West Coast and she did to, do some things for Motown, but you know, she's claimed uh, a lot of tunes that he played on and, you know, it's goes back and forth and back and forth, but her sound was totally different. You know, she played with a pick. um, It was much cleaner sound. It was, you know, part of, you know, the Motown studio sound, they knew that was John Emerson's tone. So they would just let him get away with that kind of slightly distorted tone.
1: And let's hear uh, something from, I would say, early mature Motown. This is the Marvelettes with Too Many Fish in the Sea. Take this advice and remember always in And that was the Marvelettes with too many fish in the sea. Early Funk brothers not quite peaking, but perfecting the formula at this point. Yeah, they didn't
2: um they didn't really have that that formula, the mid-sixties formula, it hadn't evolved yet. Um it it was it was getting there. Um, you know, see Burry by by being uh went before you know he did Motown, he did a lot of things. He was a boxer, he had a record store. I mean, working for a while in the assembly lines of, I think, Ford, like, you know, everybody else did in Detroit. And um, he liked that assembly line approach. So when Motown finally found that formula in the mid-60s, um, you know, there was always, everybody always had these assigned duties. Like probably from, you know, the, the mid-60s, probably 80% of the tunes had a, a guitar playing a backbeat. you know, a sharp chord on two and four, and then somebody else would be playing a line. And then another guitarist would be strumming something. Jamerson would go nuts. And then there would be the four on the floor. And then you'd have uh, either Earl playing with um, Johnny Griffith. One of them would play organ. One of them play piano. A lot of times Robert White would double what what Earl was playing, the chords he was playing. And uh, Joe Messina might double Jameson's line and Eddie would play some fills. So they had all these established kind of lines and ways that they um, approach things in the guitar section in particular, they tried to make, make it come off. Like it was one huge chord. Like they would, you know, Eddie would say, well, I'll play that. I'll play up high. And Joe, you play down low and Robert, you be in the middle. And um, in terms of pitch. So they, you know, they kept themselves from getting muddy that way.
1: And they would also have they had some pretty stellar percussionists. I'm thinking of Bongo Brown, and then they had a guy they called Black Jack and a guy they called White Jack playing bongos, congas, chains, um, and vibraphones frequently.
2: Right. Well, the best vibraphone player uh, was uh, White Jack, uh, which was Jack Brokenshaw. He was actually an Australian guy. Um, he had a group, I think he was called his, the Australian jazz quintet or something like that. But um, Jack Ashford also played some vibes. And um, there was another guy, there were a couple other guys, like there was this guy named uh, Hamilton, uh, forget his first name uh, at this point, but he played a little guitar and he played some vibes. Dave Hamilton, that was the, um But he wasn't, you know, they didn't use him that much.
1: And tell us a little bit about how the assembly line worked. Early on, Barry Gordy was a songwriter and producer. He produced numerous hits for Jackie Wilson and Marv Johnson before he started Tamla and Motown. But he was pretty unique in that he was able to cultivate other people like him who were producers, songwriters. Tell us about some of the, you know, they had Smokey Robinson, Holland, Dosha Holland, Mickey Stevenson, Norman Whitfield, Ashford and Simpson. Tell us about some of the different producers and how they would work with the Funk Brothers.
2: Barry wrote the very early tunes like Money, you know, and things like like with Jackie Wilson. Um, he wrote Lonely Cheer Drops and songs like that, you know, some of Jackie's hits, but he wasn't making any money. And um, in fact, if you ever, anybody is lucky enough to see the Motown musical, you know, they talk about all that stuff. I I played it too many times already. <laughs> it came around Billy, and I played it a bunch of times, but Um, but Burry would, you know, he, he wrote a couple of songs, you know, in the early days and in the early days, you know, it was, it was kind of like combination of doo-wop, um, blues, you know, early rock and roll. It wasn't very sophisticated music. Um, and then, uh, what happened was he found this young songwriter uh named smokey robinson and he became smokey's mentor and um little by little as the company got more and more successful they brought in holland dozer holland um later later on um when they started getting into the psychedelic thing that was norman whitfield's bag although norman also i think he did a too proud to beg and um you know cloud nine all that stuff all that era and then you had the most sophisticated stuff uh, in Motown's Detroit period came from the hands of uh, uh, Valerie Simpson. And she was just brilliant. I mean, actually, Earl would actually move over on some sessions that she would play the piano. Uh, but she was just You know, she did All That Ain't On Mountain High Enough and You're All I Need To Get By. And those songs were just really sophisticated. Um, But the way they all work with the musicians in different ways. Um, The one thing that most of them did is they tried not to get in Jamerson's way. They they let Jamerson, you know, they might write uh, a bass part for him, but, you know, they didn't expect him to, you know, it was just kind of a basic guide for him, you know, he would just do whatever he wanted, um, you know, and, and they would walk around like Holland, does or are Holland. They might walk around and whisper little things in the guy's ears. And, you know, I, I'm hearing this line, like, you know, it goes like this, you know, and then they would take it and run with it. Sometimes they would take it verbatim, but most of the time, you know, they would mess with it a little bit. Um, and they would, they would have to decide, you know, what were the best takes. And these guys were under a lot of pressure because they would crank out like a song an hour. So on a three hour session, which was a standard session, they would get three, they were expected to get three songs.
1: And for some of the producers like Smokey Robinson, he would kind of get on the wrong side of the Funk Brothers because he wanted a lot of takes.
2: Yeah. Smokey, Smokey liked to take a lot of takes and these, you know, jazz musicians, i'd like to be more spontaneous they, they had this saying called rig which stood for rigor mortis like after they would you know they said uh, about about the 15th time you know rig was set in you know and they they lost all their creativity and their spirit but you know some guys would would go for that um the amazing thing i learned um from dealing with a lot of the multi tracks, is the mistakes that are on those things. And they're great. You know, if you took those mistakes out, it won't sound, won't sound right. Like I remember I was doing love is like an itching in my heart. Uh, We were doing the uh, deluxe box set from standing in the shadows of Motown. And we, we took, uh, there was a second CD with like 20 some Motown tunes that we, Reorchestrated as instrumentals just at the board, you know, just pushing faders and mute buttons and taking out the vocals. And I remember on Love Is Like An Itch in My Heart, there were two bass players, and it was Jamerson and then there was another guy uh, that was playing just some low fundamental, and there were wolf tones all over the place. It sounded horrible when you isolated the bass parts. And it was all, you know, there, there, there were all kinds of clashes and everything. And you go, oh, this is terrible. And then you, you put it into the mix, and it sounds perfect. It sounds like, you know, Motown. So uh, go figure. You know, they they knew what they were doing. They knew, they knew when to let a mistake go, and then they knew when they had to go back and take do another take.
1: And let's hear a quick word from our sponsors and come back and talk about the peak era of Motown. And so in the mid-60s, Holland, Dozier Holland, in particular, hit just an incredible run. They have... Almost a dozen number one hits in a row with the Supremes, and they really catch fire with the four tops. And Jamerson's bass plane explodes into a really, into a whole new level. I mean, he had been a great rock and RB bass player before that, but something happens in the mid 60s with Jamerson's plane that just takes it to this uh, next level.
2: Yeah, well, songs like Reach Out and Burn It Dead. Um, you know, he was off into a different place. You know, he was, uh, the bass parts were extremely difficult to play, which, but it was like child's play to him because he had grown up, you know, as an upright bass, bassist playing on a bass that wasn't a particularly great bass. Um, I think it's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now, but it made his hand very strong because, you know, uh, really, really good instruments they are made to be played easily, you know, but Jamerson had like bear claws for hands. So when he had to play an electric bass, it was, it was a toy. And um, I remember when we were doing the tracks for the Jamerson book, the Jamerson book came with two CDs of uh, like 27 world famous bass players playing his lines and talking about them and they were all cursing me out you know they you know after they did it they would say man i I thought I'd just blow through this on like one pass it took me like twenty passes I said this stuff's hard to play I said yeah it's hard to play it's james Jameson you know <laughs> so um he, he was uh you know it, it just came you know the the one thing I've noticed through my life in music and and just in art is is that a lot of times people who things come too easy, life doesn't come easily to them. Like Jamerson had a rough time dealing with life. but He didn't have a rough time dealing with music. Music, it was effortless for him.
1: And he was a difficult personality. I mean, he was somebody who had a very difficult childhood in the South. He had some injuries to his feet that, that made him very self-conscious and made it hard for him to run. He was not a big guy, but he was very belligerent. Um, some people say because he wasn't able to run away from fights, so he had to kind of bluff his way through fights. Talk a little bit about how they had to manage Jamerson. I mean, somebody they would frequently have a keeper nominated they would sort of rotate through the funk brothers who was Jameson's keeper today, try to keep him out of fights and keep him away from the booze. What was it about Jameson that made him so difficult to deal with?
2: Well it's funny you said that Robert White used to have a saying he said everybody in the band that the, the most heard statement was, It's not my turn to uh take care of that, you know, you know what, you know. Uh <laughs> but uh he was um uh, he, he had a lot of issues. I mean, he was a beautiful, beautiful cat when he was straight. He was he was a very spiritual guy. Um, uh, like I, I remember, he was talking. To, somebody asked him once, "You know, where do you get your ideas?" And he said, "Sometimes I'd see a flower swaying in the wind, and I'd hear something." You know, that's that's a pretty spiritual approach to to your music. Um, but when he see Benny would get high, and he was he was fun. You know, he was one of those kind of fun drunks, fun you know, fun junkies. Jameson would get belligerent when he would get high. He'd get argumentative. Um, you know, he'd want to fight. Um, and it was coming from he, he had a really, really rough childhood um, because his he was born. First of all, his, his real name was James Brown. Um, they messed up his birth certificate. His uh, I don't think his um, Mother and father ever married. His father's name was James Jamerson, was Jamerson but his mother was uh, last name was Brown, and they messed up the birth certificate, and he wound up James Jamerson. Um, he also found out later in life he was three years old. I mean, that's a horrible thing to realize you're three years closer to death. But he, he found out, you know, later in his life that he was three years older than he thought he was. Um, but he. he his his mother left to go to Detroit to make some money and she was going to bring him up which she eventually did but for a while she had to live with some relatives down there and he wasn't treated very well and then he had he shattered both of his feet um in some like a bicycle accident some he had some kind of bad accident and you know, this, these country doctors, you know, they didn't, They really didn't want to be bothered. They were almost going, they were considering amputating his feet. They just didn't want to be bothered. But so they somebody put him back together. And in the studio, when Robert White would get, you know, PO'd at Jamerson, he would walk over to him and um, he would stomp on his foot, you know, when he was really mad at him. And Jamerson would howl, you know. And it, Robert said he had these weird feet. They looked like they had marbles in them. But that was probably all the scar tissue from, you know, from his childhood injury.
1: Man, and let's hear uh, some of that peak era, James Jamerson. This is The Four Tops, Ask the Lonely.
0: You
1: can make it all alone. No and that was The Four Tops, Ask the Lonely, with James Jamerson on bass. And despite the fact that they, they hit this incredible peak, it starts to fall apart, As not quite as soon as it, it peaks, but... The roots of the undoing are there. Holland are Holland go on a strike. They get in a massive dispute with Barry Gordy. They leave. Norman Whitfield comes in and he's kinda got, got a mandate to catch Motown up with the innovations of Sly Stone and and the, the sort of psychedelic sound that's going on and you get a new wave of players. Uh, you get Dennis Coffey and, and Wawa Watson on guitar but they bring in another bass player, Bob Babbitt and it's partly because there's so much work to be done but partly because Norman Whitfield and Jamerson just don't click as well. Well
2: they, they clicked. The issue was is that Jamerson was falling apart then. You know so he would show up drunk, sometimes not show up at all. So they would have to, get, you know, get babbitt. Um, I, I mean, maybe you know, it's possible you heard something I didn't, but I never heard him, you know, having musical problems with Norman. But I know he had problems. You know, I'm sure Norman wasn't too happy to, if you book a session and your bass player doesn't show up. Um, but you know, Jamerson, like, see, before Norman started with the psychedelic stuff, he was getting into the funk stuff. You know, I mean, ain't too proud to beg was a, one of the funkier Motown songs. Um, uh, heard it through the grapevine, you know, which Norman, I think Norman was getting and his BMI. Uh, the deal he had, he had a separate deal on, on heard it through the grapevine. He was getting like a million dollars a year royalties just on that one song, no matter what the song did. Wow. So, uh, you know, cause everybody was using it on, you know, commercials, you know, I remember the raisins, the Sunkissed Raisin thing with 33 Grace Line. But Norman, um, Norman was a kind of demanding producer. And that I could see Jamerson and him, you know, in the studio, maybe button heads. <clears throat> but Babu was brought in because Jamerson was falling apart uh, from his alcohol and, um, there was also, they were recording so much at that point and, you know, because what they would do, they, they took like, a, an approach the fishermen do. If you throw out a lot of fish hooks, you know, you're going to get more bites. So, you know, they would record a ton of songs and half of them, you know, half of them, way more than half of them were, were garbage. They wouldn't do anything, but. They kept the guys on top of their game, and they figured, you know, if you you cut a hundred tunes, you might get seven good ones that'll be hits, you know. So, they're not plus which they had just bought Golden World Studios, so they had a couple studios working around the clock, and uh, they there just wasn't one person couldn't do it by himself.
1: And I'm glad you brought up Golden World because the Funk Brothers didn't only play at Motown. They, they were frequently, several of them were under retainer contracts and exclusive contracts, so they shouldn't have been playing other places. But initially, uh, in the early days, they had total latitude to, to play with other people, and Jamerson and Benjamin and others went off to tour with Jackie Wilson for a while at one point. But they, they moonlighted on some famous tunes like John Lee Hooker's Boom, 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 and Jackie Wilson's Higher and Higher, and... Uh, a lot of those tunes were cut at Golden, and so Barry Gordy bought out his competition and and kind of cut off that route to extra money for the Funk Brothers.
2: Yeah, they were they were moonlighting, and you know they would, uh, you know, once they were under contract and retain and they were on retainer, you know, Motown was offended by that that they would work for somebody else because they were trying to protect their sound, and uh, so they would you know, as as Eddie Willis told the story in the movie, they would send spies around, you know, they just to see if they would hang out at local studios to see if one of the funk brothers went into, you know, a, a non Motown studio and um they would see him, they would find him. And, you know, the guys didn't care, you know, it was like nominal nominal fees. Uh but I remember um Eddie told a story in the movie where he, he said uh You know, a couple of about four or five of the guys did a session at some studio, maybe with United Sound or something. And they said, Eddie, you're fine. uh, Earl, you're fine. Johnny, you're fine. And Jack Ashford, you're fine twice because I saw you coming in here yesterday, too. You know, (laughs) so that was the kind of things that were going on. But they were, um, you know, they just they just wanted to make money. They wanted to play.
1: And around this time, Jamerson's struggling more, but Benny Benjamin, the bottom has completely fallen out. And there's car wrecks and his heroin problems just extend. And by 1969, he passes away. And that's really, really hard on Jamerson.
2: Yeah, it really crushed him. Um, course, he, you know, they had a love affair. Those two guys, you know, they were a musical love affair. They were just so close. And, uh, You know, everybody loved Benny. Everybody loved Benny. That was one of the rare days where the Motown production line stopped. You know, they just, the guy showed up at the studio and they said, no session today, Benny died. And uh, Jamerson, uh, I'm sure went on a bender after that for a while. Uh, But, um, you know, he did wind up going out to LA uh, once Motown left. Um, But uh, that just, Exacerbated the problem because he didn't—he didn't have the support group. He didn't have the people he loved around him, and you know, out there he was just another bass player. Even though he was the best play, bass player out there, probably, but his drinking his started to affect his hands, his time, and uh, everything changed. But Benny, you know, there were there were basically two death knells for the Funk Brothers. One was Benny's death, and the other one was when Motown left in the middle of the night in 1972.
1: And that's Barry Gordy had moved out to L.A. several years earlier with the ambitions of getting into movie making, which he ultimately would have some success uh, with some Diana Ross vehicles as a producer. But definitely Detroit, you know, they're, and they're recording some sessions in in L.A. and they're flying tapes back and forth. Sometimes Jamerson's overdubbing the bass part over what had been recorded in LA, L.A. Other times they're just recording the whole thing in L.A. But yeah, like you said, suddenly in 1972, boom, it's gone. The studio shut down. All the Funk Brothers are on their own. Jamerson moves to L.A. I think he was the only one of the original crew that did. Babbitt went to New York and others went to other places. But even before then, it's sort of like the noose was tightening around Jamerson. He loses Benny Benjamin and the arrangements are getting more and more elaborate and more and more written out. And he's got less latitude to do his thing At the same time his alcoholism is making it harder for him to to function
2: well i'll tell you though there's there's one place uh it's on diana ross's version of uh, ain't no mountain high enough where you know her charts tended to be very orchestrated and you know probably written out but they just let him go insane at the end on the fade and if you can zone in on the bass, on the fade, on the full-length version. Um, you can hear it on that deluxe box set. We really pumped it up on oh, that uh, Ross version. Ain't no mountain high enough. And he, it, 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 it's just not to be believed. It's just uh, the virtuosity of it and the creativity. He was, it was kind of his, in a way, almost his swan song of greatness.
1: And let's go ahead and hear that. Uh in run from Diana Ross's version of Ain't No Mountain High Enough. And that was Diana Ross's version of Ain't No Mountain High Enough, where they let James Jamerson run wild at the end, and you can really hear what the guy was still capable of, even in his decline. And the decline—it's not just he moves to LA and he falls off a cliff. He has—he he plays on a ton of great sessions. His son becomes a successful session musician, and he's very proud of that. He moves his family out there. Uh, in '74, he he does some big tours and and has one of his best financial years ever but by the early 80s he's running out the string and it's not looking good for james jamerson
2: yeah he was hanging out with ann had moved out because uh, they haven't they've been fighting and arguing and she couldn't take it anymore and she moved out and um he was by himself and the house was full of junkies and bums and drunks and uh, you know just people were just you know, trying to figure what they could get from him. And uh, that was the period where his base was stolen, which crippled him. And the base has never been found to this day. There have been a couple people that swear they have it. But Junior, you know, he saw pictures and he said, that's not it. You know, he he said, I could recognize that base anywhere. Um, and, um, you know, and Junior kind of, in a way, it was sad. He kind of followed the same path uh he passed away about two years ago maybe three years ago and he had a rough time toward the end of his life too but he was a great bass player also you know tough tough to live in your father's shadow you know somebody like that
1: yeah no doubt about that and it's sad to hear about his passing i hadn't heard that and um and the, in the movie there's a kicker that's a real sad note when they have the 25th anniversary Motown special. And that's where, you know, Michael Jackson debuts the moonwalk. And it's a massive celebration of of Motown and Jamerson has to scalp a ticket and sneak in and sit in from the audience. Yeah.
2: Um, you know, he was so far gone at that point, you know, and, um, you know, they didn't like in, for instance, in the, uh, Motown musical. They mentioned the Funk Brothers uh, in that recent documentary that Burry Gordy and Smokey did. They talked about them a lot. But back then, you know, I, I it's hard to fault Motown for, for, back in the day for doing some of the things they did because, you know, if I have to pat myself on the back, what I did was I made the marketing of the story of studio musicians you know a possibility um, nobody cared about student musicians you know mu- musicians would look to see the musical credits but the average person who listened to a record you know they didn't they didn't care who played bass on or who played drums on a track or anything like that it was from you know musicians and um, I guess that was where the the movie and the book pioneered a few things you know because we've had all these imitators since then but uh, Jamerson um you know, it's hard to, when you know what you did, you know, he, he knew he had played on a, a a catalog of music that was worth billions. And he was like one of the main cogs. I mean, uh, you know, God, rest, God bless all of them. But like uh, Duke, uh, you know, if you take uh, one of the guys, from, well, I think Duke is, I forget which four top is still alive. I think it's... Uh, I think Duke's gone, but they had, um, you know, if you take any of the background singers in these groups, like the Marvelettes or the, the Vandellas, I mean, you, really you're going to put them on the same level as James Jamerson in terms of the success of Motown. You know, a lot of these were replaceable parts A Marvin Gaye. You can't replace, uh, Stevie Wonder. You can't replace it. Eddie Kendricks. You can't replace, um, Diana, you know, was, she had a, Uh, she she was actually not the best singer and the the best singer everybody said was Florence Ballard, but she had, Diana had the magic, you know? So, you know, we're not talking about uh, saying Jamerson was more important than them necessarily, but, you know, there's so many people in the Motown story and the production and the music. It just wouldn't have been anywhere near the same without him. And it was proven because when they went out to L.A. and they were just using any kind of basses, you know, after Jamerson did a few things, but he didn't do a lot with them. And uh, once they started using just generic studio musicians, they lost the sound and that was the end of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it, it should be noted that you know Barry Gordy did pay these guys well for the time. It's just that they got a salary with no kind of royalty. There was there's no long term income prospect, and and that's the way the business has run for a long time. That session musicians are hired, you know, it, it's you're hired to do the work, and you don't have any ownership rights, and and that's the rules. And you know, some of these guys invested their money very well and and lived very comfortably the rest of their life. And Jamerson just wasn't the kind of person who could do that. But again. You know, before you did your work with Standing in the Shadows, there was almost an onus against session musicians. I mean, groups like the Monkees were really knocked for using session musicians, and groups like the Bee Gees kind of kept it on the down-low how much they used session musicians. And I think it's really important, and it's great that you did this while so many of these guys were still alive. Seeing the seeing the Funk Brothers take the stage uh, in the movie and put the pictures of their fallen comrades up next to them is a really affecting moment, and I really... The, when Bob Babbitt talks about his playing with Motown, and this is a great, great musician. I mean, Bob Babbitt, an incredible bass player and played on so many great records. And there's this real sense of pride in what he did and also a sense of pride in how he backed up an even greater bass player and james jamerson and it really moved me so i wanted to thank you for that and thanks for coming on the show Uh, this is dr licks alan slutsky the book is standing in the shadows of motown the life and music of legendary bassist james jamerson and you are also very involved in the documentary as well alan thanks for coming on the show and maybe we can get you back to talk about james brown and his band sometime
2: oh anytime anytime
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at com. Thursday, we'll have another Let It Roll seance. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com.